Matthew chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today, verses 1 through 11, 99% of the time. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Does everybody know what this is? If you don't, come see me after. Actually, go see Ken. I'll let him tell you. (laughs) That's right. What did you say? It is toilet paper. You are right. It is toilet paper. I went into the, what on ever the earth that thing is out there, um, and didn't have the right kind of toilet paper, so I had to run to the house during the greeting time to get this. Um, When I was a a freshman in college, I discovered, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I I moved nine hours away from home, didn't know anybody, like not a soul on campus did I have any kind of relationship with nine hours away from home, before the internet. And uh, the, uh, the community that you would form in, at, at Furman when you, when you go to college there, the, at that time, the community that you would first form was the group of guys on your dorm hall. So 40 guys or so, maybe less, uh, like these were going to be your, your friends. And there was a resident assistant who lived on the hall. He was a, a junior and then there was a, um, a sophomore who lived with him, who was your frad, your freshman. Uh, your, he was a sophomore that lived with the, with the RA, and he was called your frad. Um, so he was somebody you could talk to uh, about the thing you shouldn't have done that you don't want your RA to know about, um, that, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I knew nobody. I didn't choose a roommate and bring one with me, none of that. My roommate was from Long Island, New York. I was from Cleveland, Mississippi, and that's about the extent of our commonality. Um, like it was just all of it was rough. So the first one of the first nights we were there, the RA had us all stand out in the hallway and sit down kind of in the hall. And um, and he pulled out a roll of toilet paper and he said, OK, guys, bunch of 18 year old guys, you know, and he says, I want you to I'm pass this toilet paper around and I want you to take off as much as you would normally use when you go to the bathroom. That's the Okay, so you've got to reveal a little bit of something about yourself in this process, right? So he, he hands it around, and, um, and you know, you got, you got some personalities are like, you know, the, the perfectionist of the room going, let's see, how many squares is it? Is it one, two, three? I think it's about seven, you know, and they pull off exactly seven because they're, you know, Enneagram one or whatever, and they do that. And then you know, they got other, like, like, this is a performance thing. They're like me, like, it's okay, like, okay, if I choose, like, a whole bunch. That's going to say one thing about me, but I don't want to be like all particular about it and look like I know exactly what it is. So, I mean, I mean, is that is that about right? You know, like, and that's what they would do that. And then some other were like, "Oh man, this is an opportunity for me to show out." Watch this. They would just take all this toilet paper, and then everybody would laugh. You know, you know everything about that guy, right? That he took all this off. And then some people did this. They go. One square, you know, you know everything you need to know about that guy, right? And and doing that, and then so after everybody had gone around and taken the toilet paper, the RA said this. He goes, "It's okay. I want you to count your squares, and for every square that you have, you need to tell us something about yourself that's not immediately obvious to what we can see about you. Like you can't say you're a UT fan if you're wearing a bright orange UT hat or whatever, right? You could do that. And so the guys that were like this, you know, oh, look what a mess I make when I go to the bathroom, whatever, um, you know, they, they had to tell on and on and on about themselves. It was fascinating going around the room, the hall, if you will, listening to the stories of these and the, and the characteristics and the traits of these 
these, these young men, uh, two or three of whom have become, you know, dear, dear friends um, throughout, throughout many years in my, in my life. But as they were going, I realized in that moment that I could be a totally different person than I had been as far as these people were concerned. I didn't know anybody. Nobody knew me. Whatever my identity had been in Cleveland, Mississippi, was now up for grabs. 18 years of life. Because I was now alone. I was in a new place, new faces, and I could either choose to stand on my past identity or I could depart from it in varying degrees. Does that make sense? So college is really one way of many that come into this, the opportunities that come into our life where we're given, the, we're given the chance to stand on our own. You can have your identity and your character and your convictions tested in those moments. And college was just one of them for me and it maybe for some of you as well. And if you're a Christian, it's one of those opportunities where if you stand in that moment where you're all alone, if you're a Christian, if you do stand in the moment, it's totally by faith because no one else is there to tell you who to be. No one else is there to tell you who you are. Your mom's not there. Your dad's not there. Your teacher's not there. Your youth minister's not there. And in the face of a temptation to question or reposition who you are, what would you say? If your life could start completely over where nobody knew you, would you take your current identity with you or would you reposition it and reframe it to some degree? We are now going through the Gospel of Matthew and we're at the end of chapter 3 and we're sliding into chapter 4. And if you remember, at the end of chapter 3, after he was baptized, Jesus came out of the water and for a moment... Whatever barrier exists between heaven and earth disappeared just for a hot minute, between, at least between Jesus and the Lord. And the Holy Spirit descended down on Jesus in power and on gentleness and in humility. And the voice of God the Father rang out, at least for Jesus to hear in this gospel. And he said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It was a declaration and an affirmation of Jesus' identity. And with that declared, Jesus left John the Baptist. He left Galilee. He left home. He left friends. He left family. And he walked away from community. And he followed the Spirit's lead into the wilderness where he was all alone. And as you'll read in this passage today, the devil has only one question for him. If you are the Son of God then do this. If you are the Son of God, do that. At his heart, the devil is questioning Jesus' identity. He is questioning the very thing that God has just said is true. Now, he does it three times. There are three temptations in this passage. But at their core, the devil is out to get Jesus to forget himself. He's out to get Jesus to forget who he is. And it's very tricky the way he does it. Okay? He makes it look like that if Jesus would sin, he would validate his identity. But Jesus will be wiser him for lots of reasons, and some of those are very applicable to us, his followers. 
so here's what I'm trying to here's what I'm trying to frame up. You, you and I already we do. You have. You will. You do. You do. You will. You and I will face all kinds of temptations, but all of them are ultimately forcing us to reckon with our identity. Our identity is sons and daughters of the king. Every temptation that you're going to face, the devil is effectively saying, if you are a child of God, then do this. If you are a child of God, then do that. If you are in Jesus, then do this. If you are in Jesus, then do that. And he's offering some sort of alternative that looks like it, if you do it, it will validate your identity as a son of God. It will validate your identity as a daughter of the king. It will validate your identity as someone who's in Christ. But in actuality, when you do it, you are trading your identity in Christ for something that's far less. And that's what the passage is about. So I want to show you three things from this passage. It's framed beautifully by Matthew to help us explain when it comes to temptation. And all of it, all of it underneath it, underneath it is this, is this questioning of the devil to you to question your identity. That what is true for you as a Christian, is, what is true for Christ is true for you if you're a Christian. And he's getting you to question that and doubt that and act against that. So let me show you. The first thing that we see in Matthew chapter 4 is, is um, that the, the devil wants us, Satan wants us to doubt God's provision in love when times are hard. He wants us to doubt God's provision in love when times are hard. Look at verses 1 through 3. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then... The tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Follow what's going on here. This is a reasonable offer by the devil. (laughs) Jesus is hungry. He is a human being. He has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus is, after all, the agent of God in creation. The devil is not suggesting that Jesus do something wicked here. He's offering a hungry man a reminder that he, being Jesus after all, is quite capable of feeding himself. Isn't the body the temple of the Holy Spirit, Jesus? Aren't you a human being who needs food to live, Jesus? You do need to look after your body, don't you, Jesus? That's what's taking place here. That's the nature of the temptation. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a diet, and I don't necessarily mean to lose weight. I just mean, like, have you ever tried to change your nutrition in such a way? Several years ago, several years ago, I tried a paleo diet, and I started two or three weeks before a scheduled trip to Disney World. So you can guess how well that went, right? Right? So the the physical anguish that I felt walking through France and Epcot by the ice cream shop was legit. I mean, it it was a significant personal discomfort to walk through the, the walk by the Hall of Presidents next to the funnel cake place. Also, they make waffles. Never mind. So like you can, I can smell it now just even thinking about it. Like they're, it just, so even the habit 
the behavioral callus of having kept that diet for three or four weeks did not make resisting the funnel cakes or resisting the ice cream any easier. Even though I had the habit and some momentum, it didn't make resisting that temptation to eat any easier. So I want you to elevate that experience to something that's on par with Jesus in this text here. Forty days of no food. Now, so as a human being, Jesus was in physical and personal discomfort just as any of us would be if we fasted for 40 days. And while we probably would not fast like that, I did have a friend in, in seminary that did this. We do experience very painful and physical and personal discomforts in this world. It's not fasting, it's something else. We go through physical and personal discomforts and displeasure and difficult suffering and circumstances. And while we, here it is, while we are in those discomforts, the temptation that comes is, is God with me? Is God for me? We face the temptation to doubt God. We doubt He loves us because our life is hard. We doubt that He is for us because our life is hard. If He loved me, I wouldn't be in this discomfort. He would give me this help to deal with this problem if He really cared for me, and so on and so on. Man, it is really easy to trust God when life is cooking with gas, as my dad says, as a propane man. But it, we are quickly quickly put out of shape and um, when our, with our faith and with our trust in God, the minute our life is not going like we want it to go. I was put out last Wednesday night when I took Luke to the dollar store because the dollar store didn't have any cheap but meaningful valentines for my kids to take to their homeschool co-op. I was legitimately put out. That is not physical pain and discomfort. That is middle-class problems. When my life doesn't go well, the temptation is so easily, gosh, I just slide right into it blindly. Like the Lord just quit loving me all of a sudden. Like the Lord just quit being able to care for me or provide for me. Or that he was incapable of intentionally using such suffering in order to form something in me for his glory and my good. How would Jesus respond? Would Jesus doubt God's provision and love in this difficult time? Would Jesus doubt his sonship? Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Jesus answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, isn't it interesting? If you are the Son of God, do this. In Jesus' reply, he doesn't argue about his sonship. He knows who he is. That's not even a question. Instead, what Jesus does is respond with exactly that word from God, which uh, God gave 1,500 years ago to Moses and to the people. It was a word that they failed to keep, but it's a word that Jesus is now keeping. What Israel could not do, Jesus does for them. Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Israel couldn't obey that. We can't obey that either. But Jesus obeyed that in this moment. In great physical pain, in great physical discomfort, in very difficult circumstances, Jesus said, God is still for me. 
God is still with me. God still loves me. God is still providing for me. And I'm not going to give up on that by solving my problems my own way, even though I'm fully capable. I'm not going to do it. So on the surface, you might read this passage and think something like, you know, Bible study or scripture memorization is more important than eating. And that's, you know, scripture, I'm all for Bible reading. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But that's not what this passage means. Jesus is not saying, if you, you need to read your Bible more and worry about your food less. That's not Jesus' point. What, this is the point that Jesus is making. Um, one, one commentator puts it this way very succinctly, so I'm going to quote him. If there is ever any sort of tension between what the Word of God demands and all of the apparent demands of my immediate physical circumstances, then the Word of God has got to win, hands down, every time. If there is ever any sort of tension, ever, between what the Bible demands and all of the demands of my immediate physical circumstances, then i got to choose the Word every time. And when I do that, that's going to mean sacrifice. Often it's going to mean sacrifice. So, from this first temptation... When we are in difficult circumstances, and these circumstances like 40 days of hunger, feel it, get there, okay? When those are screaming at you that God doesn't love you, screaming that God doesn't provide for you, screaming that God has turned his back on you, in that moment, there is a tension, there is a conflict between the truth of the Bible and, his, and God's character and the way that you feel about your circumstances. And in that moment, you've got to choose to believe God at His Word. And the only way that's going to happen is with life experience. You can't, we're talking about it cerebrally right now. But the only way you're going to own this is by going through it. You will not grow in your ability to resist this kind of temptation by reading a book or coming to church. Faith gets tested in life. And it's in life that you find out if you really do care for the Word of God or if it's just something you believe when it's convenient outside of your experience. Jesus looked the devil square in the eye and chose to the love of God for him. And we, and we are challenged here and modeled here to do the same. I'm going to come, come to the grace part in a moment. Number two, second temptation. The second temptation is to redefine the Bible so that it works for your circumstances. Okay? So the first temptation is to doubt God because of your circumstances. The second temptation is to use God's word to twist the circumstances to your personal gain. See that? Watch. Then the devil took him to the holy city, verse 5, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. This is a vision, by the way. It's not physically happening. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will give His angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Does it concern anybody in this room that the devil knows his Bible? 
He knows the Bible. He can use it better than we can, if we're being honest. So much so that Jesus, that so much so that the devil wasn't shy to use the word of God against the word of God. Just think about this. He's quoting the Bible to Jesus. He is, he's using the word against the word. He knows it. But how does he use it? He redefines it for personal gain. He quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12, perfectly. But he interprets it intentionally, incorrectly, hoping to get Jesus to do the same. So he's he's redefining the meaning of the text in order to suit his best interests. You understand how clever this is? Satan cleverly disguises, he uses cleverly disguised misinterpretations of the Bible to get us to do something that is contrary to the Bible, all the while thinking that we are obeying the Bible. And he's doing so to serve his interests, not yours. He only has his interests in mind. So Jesus responds in verse 7, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. So what's going on here? Well, when I was in graduate school, we had a a visiting professor, and his name was Bruce Winter. He's about this tall, Australian, a vicar from Australia. And he was the most, he was definitely the shortest professor I had. He was very humble, and uh, and I took everything I could from him in the in the three like full semesters and the Jan term and all that 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 I that I could. And he had this little pithy saying. I probably have said it before. A text without a text is a con is a pretext for a proof text. See, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. This is what is taking place between Jesus and the devil in this moment. That's why it's so important, that little saying. A text without a text, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Satan is taking Psalm 91 out of its context and he's using it as a proof to get Jesus to do something that looks like obedience unless you know how to interpret the Bible rightly. But if you interpret it rightly, you see that it's actually disobedience. And so Jesus rightly interprets Psalm 911 within the context of all of Scripture and says, no, I'm not going to put the Lord God to the test. And so with his interpretation, Satan is inviting Jesus to arrogance. He is inviting Jesus to pride. He's inviting him to hubris. To use a Jewish term, he's trying to have Jesus have some chutzpah. Right? He's trying, but Jesus understands that in the proper interpretation of this passage and all of the passages around it in the canon of the Word of God, you don't do what Satan tells you to do. You do what the right interpretation of all of Scripture tells you to do. So Satan's interpretation and inevitable application of Psalm 91 turns faith into magic. Folks, if you're you're tempted to turn faith into magic, you're not reading the Bible right, right? So Jesus' interpretation of Psalm 91 keeps faith in the realm of trust in the love and sovereignty and providence of God. He keeps it in the delight of God, not 
not magic. And you actually see this play out, right, in Matthew's gospel. In verse 11, who is it that comes to Jesus at the end of this? Angels. They come and they care for him, not for Jesus' self-advantage, not as a display of faith as magic, but they come because Jesus was there in a place of need and he needed their strength and he needed their service. And so they, they came. They came in faith, not in magic. And all of this could have gone haywire if Jesus didn't know how to interpret his Bible. Which reminds us that we need to have really good use of Scripture. We need honest and humble and teachable spirits around the Bible. We need to avoid approaching God, trying to show off or manipulating God or using text to try and twist blessings for God. We need to own right Bible interpretation. We need to be prayerful and careful when it comes to understanding and applying the Bible. Insert sermon here and do it later. Okay, right there. Number three. So the first approach is I'm going to get you to doubt, look at your circumstances and doubt God's love and care for you. Well, the word says that he can be trusted, so I'm going to trust that instead of my circumstances. Okay, well, now let's take that word and let's twist it to mean something it doesn't actually mean and get you to sin. No, no, no. I know how to read the Bible. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Nice try. Two points, Jesus. Zero points, Satan. Hey! Verse 8 and 9. What's the third one? Robbing God of glory for something less than what is best. The third temptation that Jesus faces and that you and I face is the temptation to rob God of glory for something that's much less. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you, this is a vision, I will give you all of these things. There's not one mountain you can go and see all the kingdoms of the world. So this is a vision. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. The gloves are off. Right? It's just super direct, but that doesn't mean that it isn't tempting, right? The, the temptation here is to rob God of glory that is going to come through the cross. Whether or not Satan knows about the cross really doesn't matter because Jesus does. And Satan's offer on the surface is a cross-free way for him to gain what he will inevitably get through his crucifixion as the resurrection. But here's the thing. The devil cannot give these things to Jesus. He cannot give him all the kingdoms of the world. He cannot give them all of their splendor. And Jesus knows this, so he responds in verse 10, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, underline this, and serve only him. Let that sit on you for a moment. Serve only him. Him. He gets the glory. His glory is what is ultimate. His glory is what is most important. Uh, Dear American Christian, God does not exist to bless you. You exist to bless Him. And it's by His will that we were made, and it is for His glory we were made, 
Colossians 1.16, everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, all the things have been created through Him and for Him in service to Him. We can avoid a lot of temptations to take the shortcut if we would just hold that God's glory is what matters the most. Okay, this has been practical, right? Number one, temptation is about your identity. It is a challenge to make you question who you are in Christ. And there are going to be times when you're forced to say no to something that you would really like to do. You're going to be tempted to take a stance or an attitude that you'd really like to take. There's going to be a moral choice that you'd really like to go one way when all of God's Word is directing the other way. And you won't have people and you won't have circumstances that make it easy for you. And in those moments, you have to remember whose you are. It's about identity, always about identity. And maybe that manifests itself in the form of doubting God's provision and His love for you. And when it does, you've got to take God at His word. And you've got to own the word so that you're rightly interpreting that word and applying it rightly. And there are going to be temptations to use certain means that will justify the ends, you know. But these means ultimately just to worship something else other than God. And we rob Him of glory when we do that. I hope that's helpful to you. So if you look at the passage this way, what I'm saying is in part that Jesus is a kind of model for us. Like you could read this passage and say, Jesus is modeling for me what it means to withstand temptation. There's some truth. That's true. Look at the gamut. There's a spectrum of temptations here. On one side, Jesus is tempted with poverty and hunger. And on the other side, he is tempted with wealth and power. Both, it runs the gamut, right? This is a really great passage for affirming what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, that in Jesus we have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way. But there's a difference. In every way, yet what? He did not sin. So Jesus is more than a model for how to resist temptation. He's the one who does it for you because you and I aren't going to resist temptation. In the end, we are going to fall. Moses, this morning, Sunday school lesson, Moses was awesome. He was in Numbers 11, 12. He's the most humble man that ever walked, walked the earth until he struck the rock with a staff twice and and cursed out all the Israelites for their stubbornness, and all of a sudden he wasn't too meek anymore, was he? He was a know-it-all. Even Moses, even Abraham, even David, and on and on down the line, until we get to Jesus, we all will fall in the headwinds, to quote Weston from Sunday School this morning, in the headwinds of Sunday School. We're all going to fall, but Jesus never fell. He never fell. And so we're not just looking at this text as a model for how you and I are to resist. We are in awe of the grace of God 
for sending his son to live the way that we could not live. And he paid the price for sin that we could not rightly pay. And he overcame the power of sin and death through his resurrection. And if we will believe that he did that, what is true for Jesus is true for us. And what's true for Jesus is that he overcame temptation. And when we die and get to heaven, even though we failed multiple times and gave in to that temptation, what is true for Jesus before God is true for you. And he's going to look at you and say, not guilty, because Jesus paid the price on your behalf. What's awesome about this is not that it's so much as a model, is that it's an answer to our problem. So let's give God praise for being not just a model, but a Savior. Father, we do give you praise for being a Savior. Yes, Lord, we need to be so, so careful to trust you and your word in our circumstances, not not our circumstances. Just because life is hard doesn't mean that you quit loving us or quit caring for us or quit being able to do those things. We need to trust your word that says you will and you do. And Lord, when we go to your word, make us right-minded about the scriptures. Give us a discipline of right, good, healthy Bible reading and interpretation, to be in class, to be reading, to be studying, to have the tools, to give it sincere thought and effort so that when, when the Satan tempts us to believe something and interpret it in a wrong way, that we don't do that, that we know exactly where, what's true. And Father, help us not to, to, to shortcut. You know, my mom used to say, I never understood this phrase for like 25 years, she used to say, Rob, every time I'd done something wrong, she would say, The ends don't justify the means. And so much of our our sin is is the ends trying to justify the means. And we, we choose the wrong end. And because we choose the wrong end, we go about wrong means. The end that matters is your glory. Help us to keep that in mind. And when we fall in these headwinds, let us give thanks to Christ who did not fall. And trust Him in His goodness instead of our own. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.